everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is um, a panel in the Teaching Comics series we've been doing for about five years now, I think. Um, this is um, putting comics into a historical context. So thank you for joining us. We will be recording this panel. Um, so if you guys want to listen to it later, come back to it or share it with, with friends. We'll have it up. Um, my name is Sean Doughty. I'm with the Dollar Bin, and I also used to work for Here's Aren't Hard to Find with the store and the convention. Um, and I would like to introduce the panelists or have the panelists introduce themselves. So if you guys wanna wanna start, give a short introduction name and kind of any relevant information. Okay, uh, my name is Derek Royal. I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast, The Comics Alternative. Uh, I'm also um, the editorial director of Brown Books based out of uh, Dallas, Texas. And I have been a comic scholar for the past, I don't know, five, eight years, something like that. Started off traditional literary studies and then evolved into comic studies. And I'm Andy Kunka. I also co-host the Comics Alternative podcast with Derek. And uh, I have a PhD in 20th century British literature, but once I got tenure, decided I was teaching comics, and uh, that's, that's, what I, that's what I've done that done pretty much since then. And uh, I teach uh, at the University of South Carolina's Sumter campus. I'll repeat that theme. <laughs> My name is Brian Puaka. I'm a historian at the uh, Christopher Newport University in uh, Newport News. Uh, I have a PhD in German history, modern German history, and I also teach a class on the history of comics. I also got tenure and they gave me a little bit of a leash. And uh, <laughs> uh, It's been great fun and I emphasize working with primary sources in the classroom. So it's a fun course for our students to take on their way up the, uh, the major chain. And uh, I'm Tom Heiges. I publish Hogan's Alley magazine. I've been joking that I'm the token non-academic here on the panel. Uh, but uh, I started Hogan's Alley because uh, nobody was publishing a magazine that I felt placed comics into a proper historical and cultural context in the way that I thought that they needed to be treated. So I started Hogan's Alley to, to try to further that uh, understanding. Uh, I'm Will Allred. I got my PhD in uh, English lit, I guess, 20th century science fiction, uh, that stuff. And they actually let me write about comics for my PhD, suckers. Um, <laughs> and uh, I teach at uh, Northwest Arkansas Community College as an adjunct. And one of the classes they let me teach is comics and graphic novels, which is a tremendous amount of fun. Awesome. We got some pretty uh, high level thinkers on the panel. This is great. I'm excited. Um, so let's just jump right on into it. Um, so when you guys teach comics, um, for, for an example, say Watchmen, um, how do you guys approach it? Do you teach the history behind it and the historical context within the history of the time period, the importance within the comics history, or do you kind of piece it out bit by bit? You let them read a little bit, then you give them the context to kind of influence what they've read. So how do you guys approach educating people with comics in in that kind of sense. Who wants to jump in on this first? <laughs> um, I, I, I'll just say I, I teach Watchmen, I guess, pretty regularly. So to, to focus in on that, in, the, um, in that question, um, I usually start the first day dealing with um, dealing with this, this context. So I talk about Alan Moore's career, what it meant and as myself as a reader, 
growing up at the time, you know, as a, a teenager when um, Alan Moore started working on Swamp Thing and that blew me away right away. But so to talk about that kind of context, what it was, was it like to be a reader at the time that Alan Moore started at DC and, you know, what, um, what Watchmen meant in that, that part of his career. Uh, so uh, there's that. There's the formal experiments that Watchmen does that I try to fit into a historical context as well. What does it mean that there's no sound effects and thought balloons in the book? What, you know, how do we read the nine-panel nine grid in relationship to other comics? And then, um, and then there's the, the 1986 context. What, how do you talk about 1986 to a group of students who weren't born then? Uh, what, it, what, is, what did it mean you know, in that book, for example, for Nixon to be president uh, still, uh, what impact that would have had on people who grew up through the Nixon presidency instead of people who only know it historically? Uh, I do something similar to Andy whenever I've taught Watchmen. I guess I, I would break down my critical trajectories in the classroom into three directions. Uh, usually I start with an, uh, an aesthetic approach, and if I do that, often I will set up, especially if it's an introduction to comics class, I might have the students read something like Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, and, and then use a text like Watchmen to see how some of those concepts play out. So I'll use that as an example. But in the other two tra trajectories, I definitely bring history into, into the course discussion. Um, I think it's great to talk about Watchmen as a commentary on the superhero genre. There you're dealing with the history of comics, and so you can, I mean, you can bring in history as it specifically deals with the comics medium. But then I also do what, what Andy mentions and bring in the 1980s. You know, what does it mean that we have a President Nixon? What does it say about 1980 politics, Reagan's America, and all of that? So history, I mean, I, I, I've never taught Watchmen without some kind of historical emphasis in some way or another. I guess I kind of walk the line between the two in the sense that I, I obviously teaching a class that's a history class, I everything is set up in terms of context and making sure they understand how the assignment for that day fits into the bigger picture of as it is America since the 1930s for my class from the Depression. Um, but I also try to make sure that there's enough left unsaid so that when we do discuss the sources, they're making insights and bringing their own uh, interpretations to it without having feeling like they've been spoon-fed the material. Um, I don't know if Watchmen works quite as well for me when, when I talk about this, but to, to switch topics, if you mm -hmm. don't mind context, mm -hmm. you know, Superman number one is one of the assignments I have the students read, and we talk about the depression as kind of a framing device for that, and then we talk about in class some of the things that they see that maybe surprise them about who the villains are, and we obviously talk about who, you know, in terms of authorship, who are the people who created the document, and what are they doing, and why are they doing it, and what are their messages and feelings, and we obviously talk about the fact that there's a lot of class conflict here, and this is something that is a uh, you know, the bad guys in these early issues are are corrupt mine owners and are people who do things that are detrimental to the average working class kind of person Superman's trying to represent. So having them pull those things out of there with the depression as a background kind of makes them, I think, um, feel more active in the reading that they're doing. Brian, where in the semester do you place Watchmen? Watchmen for me is at the end, but it's it fits chronologically more or less pretty well at the end because at the end of the class we kind of talk about the development of the graphic novel and we do it in a couple different stages. I uh, do graphic novel and superheroes, which is Watchmen in the 80s and 90s towards the end of the class. Um, we do 
uh, graphic novels and history, and I have them read Mouse. And the one that I've been kind of tinkering with the most is I do a week on graphic novels and autobiography. And I've had them reading for the last couple of um, couple of years. I've taught the class Blankets, um, which is a, a book they really respond to well, and I think that their age group likes it a lot. I don't know that it's my favorite necessarily. <laughs> I've been tinkering with substituting Fun Home there. Uh, I have not done that yet, but it's something that <laughs> would certainly... Um, I think that would be interesting to them because obviously one of the issues that comes up even with blankets is censorship. And so, mm -hmm. you know, kind of talking about that as well toward the end of the semester with misunderstandings and misconceptions about comics, it kind of is very timely. Well, for what it's worth, you mentioned uh, blankets and then possibly Fun Home. One year I taught blankets and then Fun Home immediately after. Everyone mm -hmm. fell in love with blankets. And in comparison, Fun Home fell flat, and I was dealing with a fairly conservative student body, and so I think that there were some issues that they couldn't get around there, but uh, I vowed never to teach those two back-to-back -back <laughs> again for that reason, because of the reaction I got from them. Huh, interesting. It was curious. Have any of you ever taught um, a book called Stitches by David Small? I haven't taught it, but I've thought about yeah. teaching it. It's it's pretty brutal. It is. It is. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not... I'm on the record as not having taught, not being an academic, but I wanted you're to ask... You're an educator. You're an educator. <laughs> wanted to ask the academics here, is there a difference between teaching something that most people are probably familiar with, like Watchmen, versus selecting something that might have less familiarity coming in, and do they respond differently to the lessons that you try to impart? I... And this is something we talk on the podcast often. And whenever I teach, I try not to teach those that, that I tend to call the usual suspects, like mm -hmm. mouse being one, because chances are a good number of the students already know those anyhow. So why not introduce something new to them? Not that the others that they may be familiar with aren't wonderful graphic novels, comics, what have you. But, you know, there, there's so many like stitches. And that's a perfect example that people just aren't aware of. And I think using them in the classroom, you know, with a historical context or otherwise, I think is is doing our students a service. So we got Sean. We got to the question of canon so fast. It's like every year, <laughs> every year, it always comes hits. Up. Like, all right, what do you, what what do you teach canon? from the top? Yeah, it, it does. It's a it's a subject and a theme that that runs throughout the teaching comics well, panels. When for me, mine is more of a survey class that I'm teaching, more as an introduction to comics and graphic novels. So I'm I am going with a lot of the, the well-known works. And for me, you know, so teaching something like Mouse, uh, you know, getting into the history is so important. The context is so important for Mouse. The, and, for, you know, for even for Watchmen, talking about um, crime in the 80s, I mean, because it is, you know, Watchmen at its heart is a mystery, mm -hmm. sort of a mystery, and, and it deals... I, sorry, I have to ask this. When you teach Watchmen, do, does everybody just go, Rorschach is the greatest? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why are you guys doing that? He's, <laughs> more did not mean for him to be as well-loved as, and mm -hmm. but the students, they, they really responded to Rorschach. I'm, and I try to, you know, explain to them, you know, what tradition he's coming out of, talk about, you know, uh, quality, talk about the question, and, and, you know, that which of course leads into Ditko and, mm -hmm. and all this stuff stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of comics history just balled up in Watchmen. Uh, and then there's a lot of just history balled up in Watchmen. You, know, you mentioned Nixon is still president and, and 
uh, some of the things that Gibbons does with, you know, there's electric power everywhere because we have Dr. Manhattan and, and all these really cool cultural things that they do inside the work that, you know, did, this, did the students catch that? And if, if they did, what, what did they make out of it? You know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting work. One of the quiz questions I always ask with Watchmen, I mean, I, the quiz doesn't count for anything, I should, <laughs> should point out. Just it's more fun for me to do. Yeah. Is what, what, celebrity, what celebrity actor with the initials RR runs for president at the end of Watchmen? <laughs> and, and it's Robert Redford. That joke's really funny to me. They, they, they don't know that there wasn't necessarily was a president with the initials RR. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Um, so I'm going to take the stance that comics are an effective way to teach history. Um, so do you guys agree with that statement? And if so, kind of why? Is it the, the visual medium, medium? Is it the ability to kind of have this juxtaposition between images and, and text? Um, you guys want to kind of talk a little bit about kind of how to effectively use comics to, to teach history? Well, I guess I'll start, I guess, because I'm, I'm the guy with the history uh, thing on top of the syllabus uh, thing. I'm in some remote already. Um, I guess what I would say, I mean, obviously, I have to agree with that statement. And for me, I think the reason is that it allows us to do the kinds of things that we do as historians in terms of interpreting and analyzing primary sources, but in a very unusual, but also very, I think, accessible way for the students who are in the class. Um, the kinds of questions that we ask, at least in my class, in terms of the things we're reading are the same that you would read, ask if you read a speech from Abraham Lincoln or if you were interpreting photographs from the Depression. I mean, you ask questions of authorship and message and bias and reception and audience. And I mean, these are things that you do with comics that the first couple of classes, I find the students are a little bit skeptical. I think maybe partly that's parents, maybe partly that's, you know, they're surprised that the Iron Man movie they saw in the theaters could somehow translate into something academic in some distant way. Uh, but we talk about the Cold War, and we talk about Iron Man, and we talk about um, the ways in which, you know, these 60s themes kind of came up and how they were received and um, what was going on there. And I think the students find in the end that it's actually a very interesting and a very valuable way to do it. And I have the best part is having students in my classes who go on to become teachers say things to me like, I'm, I think we really need to talk about Captain America number one in my class when we talk about America and World War II. I mean, like, that's neat when we talk about isolationism and we talk about anti-Semitism in the United States. And, um, you know, I talk about the German-American blend in my class. When they can find things from my class to use in, in their classes as a high school teacher, I think that's fascinating. So, I often find myself, I, you know, uh, Roy Thomas comes to this, this show and I've had the chance to say to him, you know, I know more about World War II history because I read The Invaders and All-Star Squadron in the <laughs> 80s than I got from any history class I ever took. And. You, know, you you get to learn, you know, at one point, I don't know it anymore, I could recite, you know, Roosevelt's cabinet because they all showed up in that comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I try to do in, in Hogan's Alley especially is uh, present articles that challenge a reader assumption. Uh, we ran a really long article in our 12th issue about the Song of the South. Um, which is a, is has a lot, lot of baggage and is a complicated work. Uh, but if you look at the history of Song of the South, Disney tried to do the right thing and reach out to civil rights leaders and place it in a context that would make it a mainstream acceptable movie and not with all the baggage that we see today, uh, you, you know, 
R is a product of its era. It's a product of its social context. And that's true for Song of the South, too. Uh, and we had a big discussion in the office when we had the opportunity to publish this article. Do we want to publish 26,000 words about Song of the South? Um, ultimately, we did, and it was really well received. And I think that it sort of gave people a deeper understanding of, because you can't really even, I mean, you can buy it now, but it's not easy. Uh, but it's sort of this thing you hear about, but never really experience anymore. Uh, but to make people understand the social context, the historical context, the corporate efforts that went into making it a, an acceptable piece of art, I think it challenged a lot of people's assumptions about you know the origins of art and what companies try to do to put it before an audience in a way that is acceptable. That um, we we've lost a lot of that understanding about Song of the South today. So something like that, like that, I think challenged a lot of the assumptions about Song of the South. Just to cite one example. Well, from my standpoint, the most my dissertation director and the person most responsible for my degree is a Marxist scholar. And I kind of count myself as a Marxist scholar too. And historical context is everything. And the medium itself for me, I see is, you know, it, it taught me to read. Uh, it's, it's so accessible. And I don't want to bag on historians, I, mm -hmm. I promise, but I've but. read some pretty dry history books in, in the course of my life. <laughs> and the thing that comics, I mean, then I've read, of course, dry comics as well, but comics has that, that, you know, that unique combination where it can almost bring history to life, I think, uh, in a way that you don't quite get from just text. Um, now, I'm not saying that Action Comics number one is true to life and we should study that as what happened, but it does, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the it was very much a product of the working class and that's what Siegel and Schuster were. And and then I, I wanted to ask you, so I'm going to do it right now, is uh, did you bring in Morrison's kind of reboot where he moved Superman back to kind of that, you know, pardon my French here, but that Midwestern Hellraiser, which is what Superman really started out as. Uh, I find myself pressed for time in the class. Okay. So no, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. if, if they let me teach as a two-semester class, I have a whole lot more flexibility. Um, maybe the administrators will hear this podcast yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and give me a, a longer leash. Um, that'd be fun to do, but I mean, there are lots of things I'd like to add on uh, as long. I haven't done that. I, you know, we've been talking primarily about, you know, taking comics that aren't necessarily histories, but seeing history in them, looking at the context, and as, you know, using those texts, whether it be Watchmen, Song of the South, Animation, uh, or, or other, other texts, Action Comics number one, and seeing how it, it it's effectively teases out uh, our understanding of history and questions our assumptions of that. I think another way of approaching this, and I've done this before in the classroom, is to use comics or graphic novels, if you want to call them that, uh, that are actual histories. Um, I know one that I, at the very first semester that I taught a course devoted to comics, uh, I used Hoche Anderson's King, which is a biography of Martin Luther King. And it's one that I found that a lot of people don't know about, my students definitely didn't know about, but it, I think it was a great example to use in the classroom because not only was I able to bring in 
discussions of, you know, aesthetics and what Anderson is doing by using collage and different kind of kind of styles, which which is all fun to do. But, you know, it's a biography and a biography is a form of a history. And one of the things that a text like King does is that it foregrounds the constructiveness of history, how we put history together, which is very similar to what we in literary studies do in that how are stories put together. I'm, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I put a lot of stock in Hayden White in his new historicist approach in looking at history as probably most effective when it is a narrative and narrative is a way that we you know, not only talk about ourselves and our culture, but our very identities, both individual, you know, communal and national. And and, and coming back to, to King, one of the things that's so effective about that text is that Anderson does use this collage uh, approach to telling the story of Martin Luther King. And what the way that I deal with that is that there's not just one single story that narrates a particular life, very similar to an understanding of there's no one single narrative that tells us who we are as a country or who we are as a particular culture, that there are different facets to that. And I think looking at how Anderson puts together his biography of Martin Luther King tells us in some, way, in some ways how we put together our own histories, the history of an individual. Um, something very similar is going on with a book that we reviewed on the podcast not too long ago, uh, Operation Nemesis. Uh, that was written by uh, uh, Josh Blaylock and Hoyt Silva, and that is about the Armenian massacre at the early part of the 20th century. And one of the things that, uh, th that we discussed on that show was that the story shifts from a first-person account, not only textually, but also visually, and then almost a detached third-person omniscient point of view. Uh, and I think that that's an effective way of telling that story because, first and foremost, it doesn't overly bias the narrative about the history of the Armenian massacre. So uh, the guys go back and forth between a very personal story and something that's a little more godlike and detached. Uh, but I think in a grander way, it tells us something about different ways of approaching history and how history or our stories are written. You know, it's not just this one singular you know, narrative focalized way of, of doing it, but you can come at it from different angles and that together is a history. Um, if I can branch off that, last summer um, I moderated a panel with uh, Congressman John Lewis and Andrew Iden, who was his co-author on, on March. And uh, he said that he has a concern that the lessons of the civil rights movement are, are largely being forgotten by young people who are not as mindful of the sacrifices that were made that we take for granted today. So they, in part, devised March as a way to reach young people because they felt that a graphic novel would be an appealing way to impart this lesson to them, the lesson of history of the civil rights movement. And as a result, every incoming freshman at Georgia State University re receives a free copy of March upon uh, upon matriculation. So uh, they, it's been proven that uh, it is a very effective way to reach people. And part of its mission is to teach them, you know, what went on before them that helped us get to where we are today. I'd like to think even academic historians are realizing the value of this. There's a new series, Oxford University Press has put out a new series of books that uh, involve uh, a historian working with um, comics creators. And it's a 
kind of a two-part book. The first part of the book has um, basically a comic version of some important historical story and narrative that's constructed through documents that the historian works with the creator to put together. And the second half of the book includes the actual primary sources the historian used and spoke with the creator about in order to create the story, but allows you, the reader, to then look at them and kind of draw some of your own conclusions. And there's three or four of these out now, um, but from Oxford, and they're great. I mean, I've been, I've been looking at them. And the neat thing about it is I have colleagues in my department who um, do not teach history of comics, do not really maybe have an interest in comics, but have been, begin to use them in their classrooms and found them to be something the students have really responded well to. I, this, you're just reminding me of when, when I was an undergraduate, I took a mythology class, and this is, this is in the 80s, and the teacher brought in Larry Gonick's Cartoon History of the Universe, which this is a great book, and, and the, the way, in particular, the way Larry Gonick depicts the Leda and the Swan story is is hilarious but also that that helen of troy is drawn through the rest of that book with a duck beak (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and and that you know that gave us you know that that was the first time i think i ever was in a in a class in which a literary literature class anyway in which a teacher brought in a comic as as you know as a supplement to that um that subject um, so I've been thinking about kind of um, age gaps, um, generation gaps. Um, I just went back to school and got my master's degree. And in one of the classes, um, the professor was talking about new Coke. I was one of like three people, including the professor, who had heard of new Coke and knew what the story was. It was, I mean, I was kind of shocked. I mean, I, like it made me feel so much older i mean i was like maybe five or ten years older than a lot of the kids in the class um but so how do you how do you guys as educators address this issue where you wouldn't necessarily think that the students wouldn't even be aware of this subject Hmm. like has anything like that come up when when you're teaching and kind of how do you approach that like the millennials if you want (laughs) to use that term that just reminds me this may not quite answering the question but the other day mark wade tweeted that that uh x-men 137 came out 35 years ago this week and i teach the dark phoenix saga but i in in when i teach superheroes and i don't think of that as a 35 year old book and so i think of well when that came out you know how i was i guess 12 years old what was 35 years old when x-men 137 came out and that's world war ii so you know and i was into the nostalgia books that Roy Thomas was doing. And so when I think about that, those golden age books were as old to me then as the Dark Phoenix saga is now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet that it doesn't seem like, I mean, there, there are ways. So, so when I teach that, what I have to think about is what, how is that book written differently, created differently than a comic that they would read today if they got it on the newsstand? You know, I um, I have a Twitter feed for Hogan's Alley, uh, Hogan Mag. If you want to subscribe to it, follow it. Um, and nice I point. do a Today in Comics History fact every every day of the week. One day, one fact every day. So, um, in researching that each month for that month's content, I become very aware of the ages of things and when things happen. Like today, for example, I know that Garfield. First appeared on this date, 1978. 
So there you go. Uh, and <laughs> for example, for yeah, there you And Charlie Brown Christmas will turn 50 this December. There's another one for you. Um, but anyway, with, as the publisher of Hogan's Alley, I have to assume that our readers have an interest in the historical context of cartooning and the historical uh, underpinnings of comics in general. Um, so I don't feel the need to ease them in or uh, make them become interested in comics history. I assume that they're reading Hogan's Alley because they're into that kind of thing like I am. And you know we're fellow travelers in that sense. Do you guys find it's a, it's a tough sell to get people into older material? Or well, I had you know I mentioned a while ago that I used um, Hoche Anderson's King the very first time I taught a comics class, and my very first time teaching a comics class was a little depressing uh, because uh, I, I was it was the course that I teach on multi ethnic American literature. And I made it all comics-based one semester. And I put out ads all over campus, flyers and whatnot. And I thought, you know, everyone loves comics, right? You know, these kids today, and they, they love their comics. These uh, kids today. <laughs> I, I, I found out that I was much more interested in into comics and more knowledgeable about not just the, the history of comics, but that comics actually exist uh, than my students were. And at times it was annoying and depressing uh, trying to pull them along and get them into the texts and I I learned or it dawned on me halfway through the semester that well the reason why these guys signed up is because they thought they could get an easy A because it's about comics right? <laughs> um, I don't think it was that entirely but I think almost every student came into class ignorant of not only comics history but just even contemporary stuff even stuff uh, even comics titles that have been around, you know, less than 10 years. If anything, they had a familiarity with manga, but not what we would call American comics, or let's say non-manga comics and graphic novels. So it was, I felt that I was pulling double duty, not only teaching the text that I was trying to teach, you know, about comics and how they apply to issues of race and ethnicity, uh, but also trying to get my students at least, uh, at a minimum, up to some speed, uh, in terms of what comics are and how they work. I was shocked the first time I taught the class in every semester since when I, the first day I asked the students, how many of you have read a comic book in the last month? And then how many of you have read a comic book in the last year? And then I asked finally, how many of you have never read a comic book? And literally half the class or more puts their hand up. And this isn't a class that is clearly advertised as comics, right? Mm -hmm. And so I said, how many of you know who Batman is? Or Iron Man is, of course, every hand goes up, and everyone knows the movies. But the thing is, that very, very few people go from the movies to the books or come out of the books and, and see the movies. And so, for me, the age, I don't know if it's an age gap so much as it's just a difference in terms of um, the way they come to know the characters and approach the material. Um, the flip side of that is I try to meet them halfway, partly out of necessity. Um, because I do something, I don't, I haven't found a good solution to the issue of having them read individual issues. Like, I want them to read you know, a romance book from the Kirby and, you know, Kirby and Simon from the late 40s, early 50s. Or I want them to read, you know, this issue of Green Lantern, Green Arrow by, you know, Denny O'Neill and, and Neil Adams. And getting them to do that, digital is the way to do it. And I find that they really like reading the comics digitally. And so that appeals to them, I think, in ways that maybe makes it a bit more accessible to them as millennials. <laughs> I, yeah, I had an interesting phenomenon, and I don't know if, if Will's 
the class you teach is, is in the same kind of boat as mine because the, when I teach when I teach comics, I teach them in a class that is a, a 200 level fiction class. It's just not it's not designated comics. Right? Uh, is Mine that, is designated. Yeah, it's a well, it's a special topic. Okay, okay, yeah. So it's a you know it's a gen ed fiction class that I teach as, as comics and um, and uh, the first couple semesters I taught it, I had very you know kind of small number of students in there none of whom were expecting a class on, on comics, and I would get evaluations that would reflect <laughs> that. Um, but but I, I teach in a pretty small uh, community in South Carolina, and after a few years, I started to notice the, the students on the first day sitting in the front row wearing their Wolverine and Green Lantern <laughs> T-shirts and stuff and wanting, you know, acknowledgement that, you know, we, we are... Uh, I, I am one of you, and you are, so on. We're in the same club, and um, and several of them have come up to me over the years and said that they had a friend who went to the school, found out there was a class on comics, told them and high the you know high school students, hey, you go to USC Sumter, you can take a class on comics, and they're and they're doing that. And now the class now the class fills up, and that's kind of an amazing idea to me that you could somehow even use so so number one i'm starting to get more and more of the students that are familiar and comfortable with comics but you can use a comics class as a recruiting tool for, <laughs> for students that, that kind of that kind of amazes me i mean yeah. to, to stay with the recruiting tool my department several people teach the class that i teach and that is it's a class history 200 is what we call it. it's a class designed to teach students who are becoming majors and minors how to use primary sources and lots of people teach a section of this class. There's an ancient warfare version. There's a witchcraft version. There's mine on comics. It's supposed to be kind of a fun class that will attract students into the major and into the program. Uh, and, you know, I've been asked to teach my class basically in perpetuity every spring because it's just a high demand for it because it does bring, it brings people in. I will add this. We have a number of uh, universities that subscribe to Hogan's Alley and I'm always replacing copies that get stolen. <laughs> Which I am very gratified by. That's a good sign. Well, my class was actually really weird because it it was almost a 50-50 split between men and women, mm. and which I thought was wonderful. Um, and I actually had about half the class. No, I I don't read comics, but one woman in particular, she said I never read comics, but after we after understanding comics, I start out with understanding comics, and then I jump right to Watchmen, um, and then we we you know, like, wow, I didn't I didn't know that I didn't know I just mm -hmm. I did not know that this was there. You know, we read Mouse, and and they're like, wow, this is I didn't even know this existed. You know what? Tell me more. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's comics really. I mean, people get excited about comics. I mean, they really do. I mean, I had some hardcore, you know. Wolverine t-shirt guys, you know, <laughs> hey, what did you think of, you know, this issue, whatever, and I'm, wait, hang on, <laughs> back up a second, you know, but um, it, it was really, I mean, I, I really think the, probably the most successful class, mine, mine's once a week class, so we try to do a work a week, and it's, you know, a three-hour class, so my most successful week was probably Why the Last Man, hmm. and we're specifically talking about gender. Um, we're analyzing what goes on with Yorick, you know, in that first 
because if we just do the first trade, we can't do the whole series. There's mm-hmm. there's just no yeah. not enough time. And the you know the class goes from about six to eight forty five, and I think I ended up getting out of there between nine thirty and ten that night because they wanted to keep talking about everything mm-hmm. that that we were you know the, the work they wanted to talk about the work. Um, and, and for that one in particular, I mean, we talk about. I even go back. I like to talk about comics history a lot too because you know I'm a geek. But in particular, you know, talking about uh, suffrage, you know, women's suffrage. They, you know, when did they get the vote? Put that in perspective. What year was it? You know, and, and, and give them that, and then jump up to what we're seeing in comics now. You know, with well, even now and today. You know, we we joked about there's there's a women in comics panel with no women on it, right? <laughs> but that that particular class, I think. I mean, it was a, the, the entire class was good, but that one particular class teaching that one particular work seemed to strike a nerve when I taught it, and it was just it was really interesting. You, Will, what you just said about why the last man and Brian, what you said about wanting to teach things like Green Lantern, Green Arrow, make me yeah. ask raise a question for me: is is there is there an issue of access for certain things that you wish you could teach, but are Kind of, you know, can you do? Uh, you can't do ten volumes of Why the Last Man in a class, or how do you get them access to yeah. Golden Age comics if you want to show them Golden Age comics? Well, for me, I do. Uh, there's the was the Golden Age Archive. There's a couple of really good sites out there that do everything that's out out of copyright, mm-hmm. uh, and I I try to give them those mm-hmm. links. Uh, we do. I I guess I shill for Comicology because I tell them that they can order the books there or they can buy the physical copies. I'm old school. I like to have the paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for things guy. like that, you can you can put certain books, collections, archival collections, graphic novels, what have mm-hmm. you, individual issues on reserve in your library. And, and mm-hmm. it's it's kind of cumbersome. I don't know how many people, professors, teachers, do that anymore. But, I mean, that is one option. Uh, but to me, the question of the single issue and yeah. this may not have much to do with, with, with history. I mean, that's been one of the biggest challenges uh, as, as someone who teaches comics. You know, how much, if, all, if at all, do you want to rely on a single issue? Uh, I mean, I can't justify having students buy one book, let's say uh, a trade, where there's just one right. issue mm-hmm. collected in that yeah. trade that I want to focus on in class. So do I tell them to... And comicsology may be a good option, yeah, maybe yeah. a much more affordable option than that. And then also, you, you mentioned Why the Last Man. I haven't taught that, although I've, I've wanted to. I think that, that's a great example. With me, it is Jason Aaron Scout. And mm-hmm. I have taught, I think, Volume 1, and separately, another time I taught Volume 2 of Scout. And I think those work okay. I, the best that comes of that, I think, is introducing them to the first trade of... Let's say why the last man or scout, and now you can go on go and read, read and the rest, rest of, of it. Story, you know, yeah. it's ascending forth. Uh, you know, go read great comics. Uh, my sons and daughters now, but uh, but I mean, but yeah, and that's one of the reasons why you know I said earlier there's some texts that are the usual suspects. Those are usually the self-contained graphic novels exactly. that a lot of people know about, so they immediately and, and they're very teachable, right? Unlike the unwieldy Sandman or, or Scout or Volume last Four. Man. I, I did. Uh, uh, um, what's volume four? Is Season it? of the Mist? See, no, not uh, the one, the, the single, the one shots. It has. Oh, uh, me- um, yes. <laughs> yes, that's the one. Um, mainly because trivia. volume one doesn't really hit, Gaiman no. is not hitting his stride no. there, and until number eight, 
So I wanted to get yeah. more of a feel for the series as it was mm-hmm. than what it started out as. Um, but talking about single issues, I think we're to a point where the individual issues are almost like artifacts. Yeah. You, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to teach, you know, hey, I can show you Triumph of the Will, you know, the Nazi propaganda film. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't do that on a projector with 35 millimeter film anymore. I'm waiting for the <laughs> comics version. Of the comics version, yeah. okay. And I really think that's kind of where those single issues, they're, they're these things that how it came out, but this is the story and you can get it in one package now on your tablet or, or in trade or whatever. Mm. Well, I, I rely on single issues a lot, actually. And so the solutions I've been able to come up with, um, the Digital Comic Museum online is actually yeah, that's one. Yeah, I, mean, that's, yeah. I mean, I had them read Young Romance and it's from that and I pick an issue and that's what we talk about that day. Um, otherwise, on the first day, I talk to them about the fact that, you know, the class will require them to have a comicsology account. They'll need to purchase the things that we use in the class. And I ask them, you know, at the end of the semester, is this a big deal for you all? Is it, I mean, it's not really a major expense at $1.99. I think they buy 10 issues. It's 20 bucks. So, I mean, it's Superman 1, it's Cap 1, it's Fantastic Four 1. I mean, things that they need along the way. And without exception, I think they've all said they would much prefer to do that and read them and be responsible for them as opposed to, I mean, 20 bucks might get you one trade. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this way, it's basically 10 readings, you know, multiple weeks, and they're, they're thrilled with it. And they also, again, they like the digital. I mean, they like having it with them. They bring it to the class with their iPad or whatever, and they're, they're happy. Well, I teach a lot of... Well, I'm a Warren Ellis. That's what I wrote my dissertation mm-hmm. on was was Ellis and postmodernism, and you don't want to read it, trust me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the I, planetary is one of those things that I teach uh, mm-hmm. mainly because I just love it, and also because he brings in so many things about comics and comics history. Uh, you know, the four being the Fantastic Four, thinly disguised, and you know the the stand-ins he uses for, you know, Doc Savage, which brings in the pulp heroes and talking about the Wold Newton that, uh, you know, and all that fun, cool stuff. But, you know, giving them a history of why he thinks, you know, or, or I mean, Ellis's supposition is that, you know, superheroes killed every other genre. And they literally do in the book. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and trying to teach that, you know, that comics used to be very rich in a you know in genre. There was romance. There was you know all these kind of kind of sports comics. There was all this mm-hmm. stuff, but yet we only have superheroes left now, pretty much. You know, crime, lots of crime comics, but there's so much in that one work that gets into you know placing it historically. You know, uh, there's a line that uh, Snow says. You know, the th- I'm gonna sorry, close your ears. Uh, mm-hmm the things these bastards have cost us since 1961, specifically referring to the Fantastic Four, you know, as mm. they killed every other genre. And trying to, you know, put that in perspective. Uh, you mentioned, to me, the, 80, the, the 80s is mm. kind of when I was reading. The 60s are always 20 years ago for me. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and the 40s were 40 years ago, so I'm kind of lagging, I guess. But, you know, teaching all that, because all that stuff is bound up in those pages, which, you know, and I, and I think the students need to know it. And I think they want to know it too, because it, it, it adds layers and depth and gives them a, a more full experience, I guess, or a fuller experience. I was just thinking of something you said earlier about the Sam teaching the Sandman volume one. Like you'd have to, you'd have to explain yeah. the Giffen Demetrius uh, JLA, JLA, yeah. and why that's not the Justice League they would they would have expected. Justice They're League so is much, supposed to be, yeah, you know, that, that's a, that's a lot of stuff. Um, but on another note, I just 
was recently at Ohio State University's Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum, which is a fabulous resource for studying studying comics. And they just recently acquired a copy of um, All Negro Comics Number One from 1947. So I got a chance to look at that, and that's been in in my research on especially the research I've done on race and comics. That's been kind of the holy grail for me to try to find that book. It's uh, there are very few copies in existence, and what's on the Digital Comics Museum is an in, incomplete copy. And so, I, you know, I, I spent a very long time with this this artifact, and I, you know, I put it back in the folder. I stood up, and there were just pieces of it all over my clothes. This <laughs> is so fragile. And how how much longer is this? I should probably shouldn't say that. I'm going to be banned from that place from now on. But but how how long is it? You know. How, that how these artifacts it? last like mm -hmm. that. Um, I'm going to ask one last question and then we'll open it up to some audience questions. Um, we've kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, so how problematic is the notion of historical accuracy in graphic novels? Like is there this idea of truth? I know you guys kind of bring try to bring in the primary sources when you kind of educate on kind of graphic novels and comics. But, but have you ever had any kind of like issues with with you know truth and historical accuracy. Well, it, at least the, um, the the comics that I've either taught or spoken or written about, um, if for the most part, the questioning of objectivity I think is woven within the very fabric of the comic and I think that those are the most successful ones. I mean I come back to an example I used earlier, Hochi Anderson's King. Um, I mean not only do you have that presented in kind of a fragmented way uh, but it also shows a side of Martin Luther King that if people aren't familiar about, uh, familiar with, then it's not one that they often acknowledge and I think that that can rub some readers, some students the wrong way um, but, but again, I mean, if, if, if Anderson was attempting to be historically accurate in showing the less than attractive side of Martin Luther King as well as what he's best known for, the attractive side, then he's being truer to a subject than, let's say, creating him as some kind of myth. Um, I mean, if you have historical narratives in comic form that are told from multiple perspectives or, for instance, told... Uh, you know, from, from one particular observer's point of view, then that places that history within a context and it doesn't profess to be anything out there objective and a godlike account of what actually happened. And I think that, you know, it, it's up to us as not only educators, but, you know, editors and publishers to underscore this fact that, you know, as with any text, not just comics, I mean, this is not specific to the comics medium, but, you know, that, that these, these manuscripts aren't handed, handed down from on high that they come with their own baggage, they come with their own context and limitations. Now let's talk about what those contexts and limitations are. And I think that a lot of the comics that I've, you know, spoken and written about in the past, you know, do that very thing. You know, that just makes me think, just to emphasize one book that I teach that deals with history and where we talk about history a lot is uh, Kyle Baker's Nat Turner. And I've written about this too. And that is such an interesting, it's, it's unique as a comic in what it does anyway, and it's and it and it makes some very interesting comments on history in general. For those of you who are not familiar with it, uh, uh, Baker includes the entire text of the Confession of Nat Turner, which is a, a, a historical document of some um, 
you know, some questions about its its credibility and so on, but it's a first person, allegedly a first person narrative in which Nat Turner, who led a, a slave uh, revolt in uh, um, in Virginia, in Southampton, Virginia, that killed um, fifty five uh, white people, was um, uh, so that the you know the, the confession it was again a historical document that was published at the time, and then what. Baker does then is has that have a virtually silent comic narrative weaved throughout uh, the text that uh, sometimes illustrates what's in the confession, but very often it gives different information, sometimes contradictory information to what's in what's in the confession. And so there, that book really kind of destabilizes this idea, this idea of truth. Where what is the truth is. The confession, the truth is, you know, uh, Baker's version of the story, the truth, which contains a whole bunch. The confession, for example, doesn't mention the fact that Nat Turner was married and had children. Baker makes the separation of the family uh, a key element of the of the um, revolution, which is not in any of the other, other historical narratives or fictional narratives, if you include uh, William Styron's novel, The Confession of Nat Turner. So um, we really get into, and when I teach that book, that idea of, well, where is where is the truth? What do you privilege out of these things? And that also then gets into the idea with students of the, the word text combination or image text combination of comics. And they find themselves saying, you know, I actually kind of privilege the images in the book over the text and that leads to interesting discussions well one of the thing i do even in my comp class is first day you know perspective and bias mm -hmm. i say for your for your information i'm going to tell you stuff but i'm a pinko commie tree hugging hippie socialist <laughs> so i have that perspective <laughs> it sometimes gets a laugh even so anyway but, I, uh, <laughs> but I want them to know that everything, you know, and I pro probably wore this word out with my sons. Think, think about what you're consuming. Think of it, not just comics. Think about, you know, the books you read, the, the news you watch that think about the perspective, think about the biases that are, that are there. Um, you know, you don't have to agree with me, but think about these things. And if I do anything at all in the class, if I get them to just think, then I think that's a win, at least from my standpoint, because that's don't just mindlessly consume things. You know, what's you know, where are they coming from? What what is their bias? You know, of course, I always bring up Fox News. I have, you know, there's Fox News, there's MSNBC. There's, you know, what are these biases that these these uh, sources of your information, you know, what are their biases? And I, I hope that they take that to heart. I really do. Well, I was going to say, just real quick, piggybacking off that, because, I mean, that reminds me what you said, Will, and what Annie was talking about. I mean, there, uh, something else that I've used in the classroom, and I think it's quite effective at, at dealing with this question of objectivity, or at least your subject position, where you're coming from, uh, the context of you as um, you know, a writer or illustrator is Joe Sacco's Palestine. And, you know, he's known for, you know, comics journalism primarily, not, not solely, uh, but I would even call that a form of history because he's writing about mm -hmm. the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 
And one of the things I love about that book, and I always emphasize in the classroom, is that it, it, it is primarily from a Palestinian point of view. But what Sacco does so strategically toward the very end of that text is he brings in an Israeli perspective. There's this section, this chapter, where he is talking to two Israeli women, uh, and they question him about his position on the Palestinian question. Well, you're not painting us in, you're probably not going to paint us in the most positive of lights. And they have a dialogue back and forth, and it, 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 in many ways, it kind of, in a, almost a metafictional way, kind of underscores his project in Palestine, which is to give another point of view of a historical situation that hasn't been addressed, at least from that perspective, uh, frequently. And so, you know, it, 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 when it, whenever I teach that, I like to emphasize that uh, it may be the penultimate chapter, but it's toward the very end of the book, where he does bring in an Israeli point of view to kind of question him as an objective uh, reporter. Well, the, uh Joe Kubert did uh, a book. Facts from Sarajevo. Facts from Sarajevo. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Have you guys taught that at all? or mm -hmm. I haven't either. It's one of those that I've wanted. It's on my to-read list, which is <laughs> like taller than me now. But, you know. <laughs> all right. Um, audience, any questions? Go in the back. So in case you guys didn't hear that, the, the question was, um, are there any kind of particular comics that you would use to teach non-Western history? I would be really fascinated to find out how Boxers and Saints goes over because I think that's a really rich book to teach on many levels as, as a as a really complex narrative and as history. So, and and I think you could get especially with the Chinese students here, you're explaining what is there, what do they learn, you know, what did they learn growing up about this event. And how does is, does the book reflect that? Because for me, the question piggybacking on that would be: Well, if you're trying to reach, you know, non-Western students by introducing a text that was created by a Western artist, because you know, Gene Yang, he may be Chinese American, but you know, he is, he is Western. Um, I mean, that's going to cause its own kind of challenges, mm -hmm. not problems, but challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think it could be fruitful grist for the classroom where you can maybe contrast where your students are coming from in their understanding of that part of their history and the way that this Chinese American comics artist has represented that history. Not and not just Chinese American, but Chinese American Catholic. Yeah. And yeah. Yang's deeply, deeply Catholic. And that gets into Will's yeah. earlier point about perspective, perspective and bias. Do you speak Chinese? I don't either. I, I, speak, <laughs> I barely speak English, I've been told. Um, you know, if you did, then introducing a work by a Chinese artist, I think, would be an amazing thing to do. But like I said, I barely read and comprehend English most days. So um, 
another language is, but I, that's something that um, in where in Northwest Arkansas we have a lot of uh, Hispanic uh, students, and I like I said I don't even speak Spanish, but I I would think that would be a way to try to reach by finding a work by an author that is a native speaker or you know from that. Yeah. Uh, just a guess. And yeah, you had a question? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I phrased this question differently initially in my head, and I'm sorry to rephrase it to it. You made it um, a few moments ago. Do you address the censorship of the Thomas Code Authority in the wake of Warbone's uh, Seduction of the Innocent and how it wasn't just superhero popularity as a genre, but it was actually American censorship that killed our monthly audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I do talk about Wortham, and he's kind of, I don't talk well about him. Uh, <laughs> well, and I mean, if you look at even at his methodology, you know, it was, it was crap science, pardon my French. I mean, would you guys agree with that? It was crap science. You can say worse things than There have been studies to prove uh, your yeah. statement. Um, but yeah, I do talk about that, talk about the censorship, um, you know, burning, you know, I, burning books in the 50s. It wasn't just comics. I mean, it was the 50s in America was not a place I would want to live, especially being, you know, a pinko commie like I am. But it was, yeah, I mean, we, we have to put that in historical perspective. And I don't teach works from that era. I mean, I'm, I, mine is pretty much a survey class of more modern stuff. You know, we go back to Watchmen and, and Mouse, but more recent stuff. But I do try to give them that historical context of, you know, comics started in the 1800s. If you go back with, you know, Rudolf Toffer and then that stuff, mention that. Go into the 30s, Funnies on Parade, and give them that kind of overview of comics history in a capsule, maybe in a couple of hours. But definitely talk about Wortham and, yeah, the evils in the name of censorship. But even in Watchmen, Wortham factors in, right, that yeah. there's the idea that... Wortham doesn't get any traction in that world because they want to promote. Yeah, <laughs> the government wants to promote comics as uh, as propaganda. As they have their own superheroes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because you you asked the question about Wortham, and I think it, it it it's. I mean, I don't want to excuse anything that he did in terms of you know what he did to comics. I agree, but I think that by creating him as the big bad it, it is a big problem. Because and, and this becomes an opportunity to introduce history back into the conversation. Um, I mean, the more you dig into Wortham, or at least the more I dig into Wortham, the more I don't want to say sympathetic. Okay, I'll go ahead and say just almost sympathetic uh, that that I feel to his plight as a whole, because this is someone who came from. A, a more social democrat frankfurt school even marxist background mm -hmm. and so some of his other views outside of comics may resonate <laughs> with you yeah. well. um and so learning how he just got it so wrong and how he even purposefully uh skewed a lot of the information that he was he was releasing um you can't get around that but at least his intentions uh in a larger philosophical way of what he was bringing to an analysis of pop culture 
you know, as, as kind of whacked out as it was at times. Yeah. I mean, he was coming, I think a study, a thorough study of Wortham and his relationship to not only comics, but just popular culture at the time is another avenue to bring in a broader sweep of pop culture and the historical context of the West at that time. I would completely yeah. agree with that. And I would also say that he might have been, you know, his methodology is discredited. He was perhaps well-intentioned, but misguided. But I think the larger question with him is, how could one man have such an effect on a medium? No other academics challenged it. The media didn't challenge it. I mean, he had such an outsized platform that he should not have been given. Uh, I think that's the real question. How come, how come no other studies or no other academics offered a countervailing opinion? Well, I think this goes back to comics as... Comics has always kind of been considered a second-class medium, and the people that work in comics have always kind of considered it less than ideal. You had the early, the early artists, you know, the, the original first-generation comics artists. They work, were working in comics until they could get into the comic strips mm-hmm. where the money was, right? I mean, it was kind of, I'm only, I'm slumming, you know, basically. And I don't know, comics has always had that kind of, you know, Longing for respectability, mm-hmm. I think. Is that, I don't think that's too yeah, far out of the I used to interview Will Eisner for um, Kitchen Sinks reprint series, mm-hmm. and he said that uh, in conversation about what you do for a profession, back then, comic book artists would say they were commercial illustrators. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, comic book artists were one step above pornographers, as he put it. Uh, so you would never say you were a comic book artist, you were a commercial illustrator, unless you worked in comic strips. Then you were a celebrity. That's right. How, how many people have read Seduction of the Innocent, by the way? Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> a couple yeah, parts. Or, <laughs> or, I mean, there's, there's things in which, you know, not just with methodology. I mean, he, he is right about, for example, issues of race in comics in the 1950s. I mean, he's, you know, whether, whether or not he, he can document any effect it has on the young readers, they're, you know, when he, when he nails... You know, jungle comics for being you know, depicting you know racist depictions of natives. He's absolutely right. Well, you go back to the you know depiction of the Japanese. Oh yeah, yeah, it, and right. he does that. Yeah, he, he hits on that too. Um, so I'll point out that it is after four. The panel has already wrapped up, but. Um, <laughs> We can stay a little bit over. Um, there's not another panel until five, the Inkwells. Um, so I think you had a question. Yeah, Blue Shirt, if you want to go and maybe we can talk a little bit longer. Um, wish we had like three hours for these panels, <laughs> but we don't. I have a pedagogical question. What strategies in the classrooms do you get to use reflections Annotations is always a big problem. I, I don't have a problem writing in a, in a prose novel and making notes, but I'm still <laughs> so much of a collector <laughs> if I were to start, start writing in a comic. So I bring in my copy. Like my copy of Watchmen is twice as thick as it should be because it's got sticky notes in it. And so that, you know, when you're talking about annotations, that's definitely one of the things I recommend. Get a, get a load of sticky notes yeah. and use that to, to mark up your book. I, I second that because that's what I do. I don't write in my comics. Uh, journaling mm-hmm. is another way of doing mm-hmm. it, uh, is having them 
and you know maybe even grading that, uh, taking it up once a week, uh, whatever their reflections are, their thoughts, you know whether they liked it or not. It doesn't have to be an intellectual reaction, but just just writing something down. I think it's a great way of uh, getting some kind of student reaction. I make them respond multiple times a semester, and that to me that's kind of a, a one one page response in some way to the reading. And I give them flexibility. I mean, I ask them to do maybe eight over the course of the semester. So if they don't have a strong response or reaction to something, they can pass on it. But multiple times, I want them writing about it and thinking about it, and, and not describing it, but you know, analyzing. It. I mean, that's the whole point. I say, I've read it too. We all read it. Tell me something that you took from it that had an impact on you. Talk about what there's going on there in some way, what the author's trying to say, or what bias you detect, or what the message is there uh, that you interpreted. And, and that makes them kind of sink their teeth into it a little bit more. Do you I find did, that there's a learning curve with the, oh, those yeah, response? Yeah. Because I, I do that too, and those first couple, they're yep, so absolutely. nervous. What do you want from me with this? What do you want from me with this? And it's they just like, don't worry time. about it. Yeah. You've got five or six of these to do, you'll get it. <laughs> I also I also low stress graded it, if that is a possible yeah. thing. Uh, I, I'm a fan of, for this type of assignment, kind of a check plus, check, check minus. People, you know, they get a, they get a B plus back or a B minus back and they, they freak out at check, check plus, check minus. In my grade book, it's, you know, I take a note of what it was and it's such a small part of the grade over the semester it doesn't mean a lot but it makes them do something and if they zero them I mean that obviously has a very big impact but I mean just doing it and thinking about it and turning something in and maybe not being timid about it is, yeah. is the key I guess I was lucky or unlucky depending on your point of view my my class was really pretty small it was about 10 people um, so it was it made yay but um, <laughs> uh, we did a lot of dis discussion I mean it was small enough that we could just talk we would talk about, you know, what did you get at, you know, why is Rorschach so appealing to you? Or, you know, why, what what specific thing, you know, did you respond to in this? I and mean, it's a lot, a lot, and a lot of discussion. Um, my grading was a lot of, you know, attendance quizzes, pretty much is what it came down <laughs> to, you know. Come in, you know, did you, who wrote what we were, you know, the work that we're talking about. But <laughs> the, the, the point of the class in my mind was getting them talking with each other and talking with me about these works and their responses to these works. Um, red shirt, did you have a question? Yeah. Um, I was talking with the director of my department. I work at a very small Christian college in Mississippi. And I kind of have to do this thing where I say, Hey, what about love? And get the response before I actually try to present it. But I came up with this idea of like, hey, I would love to teach some college and continue that through the 20th century and then without half the class to my mom. And I said that, and my, my parents kind of looked at me like I was a thief. So, do you all have any pointers about how I could pitch this as an intellectual practice that has merit, not just in the comic book? <laughs> well, uh, one of the most successful books about mythology, I think, I read was, uh, oh, heck, William Mesner Loeb uh, and Sam Keith. Epicurus, uh, Epicurus the Sage. The Sage yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a comedy. It's maybe not the best for a Christian college. <laughs> but you have so many of the stories and the characters in there, and they're so memorable the way they're presented that it, I mean, there were some stories about mythology that, you know, I've, of course, read the handbooks and all the everything, but there were some things in there that I'm like, oh, I, I forgot that I'd even read about. You know, it was, it was I, I loved it. And it's like three, four, five volumes of it or something out there, I think. So 
Simon's in store. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I, I mean, yeah, when I took mythology in college, I remember it being so easy because I'd read Wonder Woman. Yeah. Like in, in Thor. But, you know, you're, you're asking the question of how do you overcome kind of administrative barriers to comics? And that's, you know, the weakest answer I can give is that, well, you know, that's that's changing now. You know, I mean, we're getting it's getting better. Um, but, um, you know, that there's there's scholarship out there. I mean, there you know, there are journals devoted to comics, academic journals, peer reviewed academic journals devoted to comics. If your administrators are receptive to that idea that comics are a legitimate mm-hmm. uh subject of study by academics, maybe that that can help. Mm -hmm. If it's any consolation, my first teaching gig, I had administrative hardships getting a film studies course (laughs) uh, (laughs) approved. And and this is uh, an area of study with decades, decades Mm -hmm. of, of back history, and they still didn't consider it legitimate enough. Now, I was able to overcome that. So you could, I mean, you, we could be asking this question several decades from now about comics. Unfortunately, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming. Um, I know a large portion of the audience has, has left, but thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, don't forget to check out Comics Alternative Podcast. They do have a table downstairs. Yeah. They have postcards. Don't forget to check out Hogan's Alley, and don't forget to take comics classes at your university or teach them. Um, thank you so much to everybody and don't forget you can listen to the panel at the dollar bin.com.net geez whatever <laughs> on day on day thanks everybody.